Welcome to GMHC, and I especially welcome you to this session entitled Dental Care Admissions. My name is Jeff Amstutz, and I'm the Vice President for Dental Education with Christian Medical and Dental Associations. My experience with both dental care and missions uh, over the years have been quite varied. I began uh, my dental practice uh, for 10 years in private practice following dental school with my dad in a, a small practice in Ohio. and. Uh, then ended up moving with my family uh, overseas uh, to work in Central and primarily in West Africa uh, for the next 12 years. And, and then in 2012, uh, uh, God brought us back uh, to the States uh, to work with the Christian Medical and Dental Associations. And for the past six, seven years, my focus has primarily been with delivering dental care in underserved areas in the United States and in equipping and, and training residents and young dentists to live out their call to serve God through dentistry while meeting the needs of underserved and unreached populations. What I'm hoping that we can get out of this session together is really uh, a challenge to think about our approach to dental care admissions, perhaps in a different way than we've thought about before. The world, as we know, is rapidly changing and the opportunities to, to go in and be the dentist and do, do dentistry as mission in the way that we've done it in the past is beginning to change. And because of that change, our thinking and our approach to that, both as organizations and as oral health care providers needs to change along with that. And so in our session, we're going to look and identify, you know, dental and spiritual care, the way that those are making an impact on the lives of, of our patients. Uh, and while this particular session isn't going to focus primarily on the spiritual care aspect of it, although for me, that's the principal focus and why we do this, I really want this session is going to look at our approach to dentistry and the opportunities maybe that are being afforded us um, at this time and place uh, to go places that uh, dentistry might open doors for us. Uh, we're certainly gonna look at the need um, around the world and, and even right here in the United States and articulate that and see that, you know, what dentistry has the opportunity to, uh, to begin to come and meet that. But primarily I want us to think uh, strategically um, on our approach to dentistry and missions and begin to ask questions. So we're gonna look at a couple of examples um, that I put together of, of how we might approach and, and think a little bit differently about that. And then the final thing is, I certainly wanna provide you with some resources. Where can you go to look up what are the dental statistics, what's happening in particular countries, how many dentists are there, so that you can begin to uh, gain an understanding of, of places that you might uh, go and serve. And so let's start uh, and let's look at uh, dental need in particular. It's no surprise if you working in dentistry uh, in any capacity um, over the years that the need for dentists is huge. Um, this big, huge study in, in 2010 showed clearly that oral disease far and away is the most prevalent uh, diseases um, around the world. Um, three of the top 10 most prevalent uh, are, are specifically related to, uh, to teeth, uh, untreated caries of permanent teeth, severe periodontitis, and untreated caries of deciduous teeth. And, and so the study just confirms you know, what we know that uh, dental disease um, is rampant, uh, not only in our inner cities and in the United States, uh, but around the world as we go. But the need is there, the need is one thing, that's obvious, but the second big factor as to whether people are able to experience oral health is whether or not they have access to the care and to the treatment that they need. This study by Hassanpour and Peterson kind of looked at some of the socioeconomic factors and drew some conclusions. So this is some of the conclusions that, that came uh, through their study, that there's an unequal distribution of oral health professionals and that due to a lack of health facilities in most countries, that means that 
access is often very low. Other studies uh, clearly support this. If we look at this map, and we'll just take a minute to show you what we're looking at. We're looking at the number of dental schools per country uh, around the world. And, and so, as you can imagine, that varies greatly with uh, many countries not having any dental schools, no opportunity for training. When I worked in Gabon and I worked in West Africa, um, most of the countries that we were involved in had no dental training. We had to send uh, folks, if they wanted to become dentists, to go to dental school in, in, in Dakar, Senegal, in that area. But if we look at this map, the, the light blue, the United States, we can pick that out pretty quickly, India and Brazil, those are countries where there are 50 or more dental schools located there. And it kind of goes down from there. So we see even based on where their dental schools are, there's going to be more of an accumulation of dentists and oral health care providers in those areas compared to other places in the world. This map is interesting because it shows not only, you know, we have dental schools in, in particular areas. For instance, we have a lot of dental schools in India, uh, between two and 300 dental schools located in India uh, that, are, that are training uh, dentists. But what happens is oftentimes uh, from some of these areas, there's a migration of oral healthcare professionals. And if, if we just look at this map and look at where the arrows point, uh, we can see where these dentists are going to. And it makes sense. They're going to uh, the higher income countries. They're going to where things are more developed, where they have a better chance of, of using the skills that they've acquired and, and making a living. So we see uh, arrows going to the United States. We see them going to Europe. We see them going to Australia and to uh, South Africa and, and a few other places as well. But this migration just continues to increase um, the lack of access to oral care in particular areas. So the result of that is that um, three quarters uh, of the dentists in the world are really operating in North America, Europe, and in South America, uh, leaving huge populations um, in Asia and Africa and throughout the Middle East sharing only a quarter uh, of the world's dentists and uh, being able to provide uh, care and oversight to, uh, to the uh, population that they're there to serve. And so as a result of that, what we see is that um, services in, in low income countries, as we might expect, uh, only 35% of the population even had access uh, in low income countries to health care. Um, whereas 82% in high-income countries have access to some dental care if they uh, choose uh, to look at that. This is a map of decayed, missing, and filled teeth worldwide. And I'm not going to draw a lot of conclusions from this. We really can't draw a lot of conclusions, but we can look at this and, and see just the variation in the number of, of teeth that have either been filled or have active decay or are missing uh, due to decay. And, and so we see the darker red areas are areas where the rate is higher than 3.5 teeth. So what they, this is at age 12 year old, they do examinations and they record the number of teeth uh, in that 12 year old that either have active decay, uh, have uh, had a filling placed in there or where there's a missing tooth as a result of decay. And, and so this just shows that, you know, decay happens everywhere. Um, and there's a lot of factors that play into why some areas have higher uh, incidence of uh, decay um, than other areas. And we're not gonna really look at that factor, but I wanna set this up because it's interesting to note if we look at the areas where those teeth are actually filled as opposed to where there's active decay, we get some insights that's, that support that, that second premise of, of low-income countries having less access. And this graph shows just that. Um, if we look at the low-income uh, graph on, on the right, we see that as they looked at the decayed, missing, and filled teeth in the 11 to 14-year-olds in this grouping, they found that in low-income countries, 95% of those teeth that were marked were actually untreated decayed teeth that hadn't been filled, hadn't been extracted, but remained untreated and decayed. And if we compare that to a high-income country, we see that in high-income countries, um, over half of those teeth that were recorded had fillings in them. Uh, still a good significant number, 44%, that, 
that represented untreated decayed teeth. Uh, but we see a big difference, again, in access to care and, and um, what people are able to do as far as being able to seek treatment. The final um, conclusion from this uh, particular paper is that dental treatment is costly. Uh, around in high-income countries, it averages 5% of all health expenditures and 20% of all out-of-pocket health care. If we look at uh, specifically the European Union, we can see the amount of money that was spent on uh, yearly expenditure um, on oral disease was $79 billion a year spent. Um, that's $28 billion in the European Union, more than was spent on cancer um, as an average over those years. So that we see that oral disease is a significant cost uh, to the population um, only uh, outdone by cardiovascular disease and, and diabetes. And, and so access to care, um, certainly in low income versus high income countries, um, this becomes evident that people are not having access to care. But what about within cities? You know, what about high income, well-developed cities? Is there also discrepancy um, within that area? And so this map, I'm going to take just a minute to look at it. It's very busy, so we kind of want to step back and take a look at that. This map is a map of London. And so it's looked at all the different neighborhoods uh, of London and has mapped those out. And what they looked at was this being a, a very rich city, they wanted to look at the differences within that city. And so they created this um, graph looking at what they called deprivations. Uh, deprivation being uh, seven factors that, that could be present in a population. Um, they're looking at income. Uh, so those that have a deprivation of income, those uh, have employment, of health and disability, education, training, uh, barriers to housing, crime, and the living environment. And they created this scale. So those that had more of those deprivations, the more deprivations they had, the redder their area and particular neighborhood is represented here on those maps. Those that have less deprivation um, are shaded uh, in the blue and the blue gets darker, the fewer and fewer deprivations that you have. And, and so they went ahead and did that, mapped that out for London. We saw the areas high deprivation showing up in red, low deprivation showing up in blue. And they asked the question, what, what is the life expectancy of a baby that's born in a blue area compared to a baby that's born in a red area of high deprivation. And what they found is, is a baby that was born in the blue area could expect to live 84 years or more um, being born in an area of low deprivation compared to a baby in the same year being born in an area of high deprivation or one of the red areas, that baby could expect to live 79 years or less. And so within a city of Memphis, the deprivation has an impact on life expectancy. Then the areas that are represented by the tooth, somebody asked a question, I wonder what percentage of five-year-olds have experienced a toothache? And let's compare those areas. And so what they found is that in the blue areas, five-year-olds, 20% or less of five-year-olds had experienced toothaches um, from the areas that were in, in low deprivation areas, compared to 40 to 50% of all the kids in the high deprivation areas had experienced toothaches. And so I, I put this in there just to show you that there's always areas and people that are underserved. That's certainly the case where we're doing our, our dental residency training. We went into Memphis. Memphis has a high percentage of dentists. Um, there's a dental school there and a lot of dentists continue to stay. But in the areas of the inner city where we serve, there is a, a real lack of dentists that are able to uh, bring on the patients th that we see. And so our residencies are set up there and, and in Detroit, uh, the, the Memphis and Detroit, two of the highest areas of need um, in the entire country uh, for care. And, and so our residencies are there to uh, help meet some of these needs. But it shows, uh, again, in the United States, areas of high need in rural communities uh, as well as inner cities. Um, and as we look around the globe, certainly there are countries that have uh, nearly no dentists compared to 
countries that have relatively decent access uh, to care. So the need is tremendous. Um, you know, if we can figure out how do we meet the dental need and combine that with our purpose of going in and, and meeting spiritual needs, we have the opportunity to increase access to oral health care and see better outcomes in those populations of needs. We can begin to make a difference uh, in the oral health of people's lives. Uh, but even more importantly than that, when we combine that and go in with a holistic approach that not only treats teeth, but treats the entire body and the spirit as well, the differences that we make are lasting and, and really make a true difference uh, in people's lives, both for now and for the future. So what are agencies, what are dentists doing currently? What does it look like uh, to provide dental care on missions around the world? Uh, it had been my hope, and this will be another session that we do at some point in time, to uh, bring in dentists that were that are currently working um, and to hear from them and, and what are they doing? How do they think about um, their outreach and, and ways that dentistry are, are being used? And, and because of the current uh, global situation, we're not able to do that. Um, we will try to do that in another session uh, in the future. Uh, but I wanna to touch base on some of the things and I've got a list of, of some of the ways that dentistry is being done. Um, around the world currently, and I know people that are uh, currently in all of these areas, but, uh, you know, traditionally hospital-based dentistry overseas uh, it has been one of those areas um, where within a mission hospital setting, a dental clinic is established and, and treatment of patients uh, from that area are done. That's still going. There's still tremendous opportunities. There's hospitals now that are looking for dentists uh, to come in and to work and to help train um, doing that village outreach, uh, of course, uh, going uh, from hospitals out to other areas, um, short term uh, teams going to, to places, bringing dentistry to that. Uh, there's a hospital that uh, um, is in a fairly developed uh, country. Uh, and uh, what often happens is just like we saw in inner city London and we experience in Detroit, that there's within the population in a particular country, um, there are those that, that aren't served, um, either because they don't have the income uh, to be served or um, because of their location. And so uh, one, one country, a hospital has a mobile van that's able to go to uh, towns on the edge of the desert and, and set up and, and be able to treat people. Uh, there are those that are, that are training uh, non-dentists um, in basic dental skills um, where there's no other treatment even available for hundreds and hundreds of miles. Uh, they train uh, these folks so that they can go back and, and, uh, and, and share um, their dental skills, uh, but also share the hope that they have uh, with those ac across borders um, and in areas where otherwise uh, people wouldn't be able to go in to do that. A dentist has started a, a mid-level tr dental training school and has graduated several classes. And, and so that's going on. There's a dentist that's uh, starting a residency program. Uh, for those that have already obtained their dental license in a particular country, uh, coming alongside of them, um, sharing with them additional training in dentistry, uh, but again, also sharing uh, the hope that they have um, and discipling others uh, uh, to continue the work. And so short-term training, teaching, um, going and serving, teaching in dental schools, uh, public health, one dentist and, uh, had done all his training and, and uh, finished a GPR and was going over to provide dental care, take his experience. And, and when he got there, he wasn't able to practice dentistry and to get a license. And so um, had to quickly change course um, and started a, a public health training program in schools where uh, teaching kids uh, to wash hands and, and to brush teeth and a government supported program that has continued to grow um, in that particular country. And, um, so the opportunities uh, for clinical dentistry are not great um, a lot of places, um, but some places they are. Uh, Saudi Arabia and Kuwait uh, often hiring uh, dentists from the West uh, to go in and work in their clinics and to serve their population. A dentist in East Africa uh, that continues to work alongside uh, dentists uh, from his country um, in a clinic situation. And of course, there's always groups of people that, that uh, the dental population isn't serving. Um, and so governments often allow 
non-governmental organizations to come in and, and provide care to refugee populations. And, and as you're aware of just refugee populations around the world are, are exploding in numbers and, and in need. And, and so those are some of the ways currently that that dentistry is, is being used around the world as, as a means of, of mission and providing care and hope uh, to those. And so as we continue to look through um, this, we realize that not only is the need great, but the obstacles are often great. One of the frustrations and uh, that I hear from, from young dentists that have a, a strong sense of call to go and serve internationally is that as they begin to, to really look at what does that look like, you know, to become a dentist, we kind of take our, our U.S. model of uh, clinic and providing care to patients and, and think that's the way that we're going to be able to go uh, to another country, but soon run into licensing issues and cultural differences, access to technology and all kinds of things, medical syndicates, dental syndicates that, that kind of keep out uh, foreign dentists from coming. Not a whole lot different than, you know, coming to the United States from another country to practice. A lot of hoops to jump through um, in doing that. Government regulations, cost barriers, and all kinds of, of things. You know, we think, and that you know, because, you know, we're well trained uh, and the need is so great in areas, it just seems like, boy, it should be easy to go as a dentist to areas of, of need and serve, but we find that these obstacles are there and are sometimes prohibited um, to go and do dentistry the way that we've been trained to do it. And so I want us to begin to think a little bit differently about our approach uh, uh, to dentistry and the way that we might use that in mission uh, around the world and also um, here in the United States. I was on a, a, a call with uh, some leaders that were involved in international healthcare um, a couple of months ago. And, and one of the uh, lecturers there, Mike Soderling, he works with uh, Health for All Nations, uh, reminded us of our approach to challenges that we have. And, and dentistry itself is a challenge, but taking it someplace else and, and going into another place is really a challenge that's different oftentimes than, than those that we've uh, approached in the past. And, and so this work uh, by Heifetz and Lori, I studied them in the 90s um, as I was doing my MBA degree. And I think it's still relevant today to our approach to problems. They talk about technical problems. Um, technical problems are the kind that we often see in dentistry. Our approach uh, to dentistry is, is very technical. The problems are easy to identify. They're usually quick and easy solutions. It may not be super easy, but they're, they're clear cut, dry. We know what it takes to do that. Um, we bring expertise and authority to that to, to solve them. And, um, and usually we just have minor changes that we have to do to do that. And, and in general, people are receptive to those kind of, of solutions. In medicine, you know, one of the example is uh, that we come into um, is somebody that is diagnosed with high blood pressure. Um, the technical approach to that is to seek an expert, um, go to your internist. The expert then can write a prescription. Um, you take, you make a, a couple of adjustments in your life, take a couple of pills a day. Um, we're receptive to that. It doesn't take a whole lot of change, and we can begin to. Um, experience a greater health as a result of that. And, and so the doctor can call in a prescription, take care of what we've done. If we look at adaptive challenges, they're a little bit different. They're a little bit more complicated. They're often easy to deny. They require change. They require buy-in and in the, in the people that have the problem are the ones that have to begin to do the work of, of solving it. And, and so the corollary to that is that the adaptive challenge the high blood pressure isn't going to the expert and getting medication. The adaptive challenge is to changing our lifestyle. That I have to accept the fact that I have high blood pressure and that my lifestyle is contributing to that. And so I've got to change my approach to diet and exercise and, 
and workload, all of those kind of things. And it, it takes me to really begin to work and to make the change. And I've got to change a lot of areas and not usually just one area. And so it's, it's a little harder to get people to buy in. The difference here is between, you know, dentistry as a treatment option, which is how we've been trained to come in and, and provide that filling or provide that implant for our patient and take care of their problem with our expertise as compared to, you know, more public health dentistry, which is a real adaptive challenge of, of getting people to recognize their role in their lack of oral health and, and then to make changes and buy in um, so that they can begin to experience uh, oral health to a greater degree. And so dentistry is going from a more technical problem approach to more adaptive challenges. We recognize the role of dentistry in the entire body health. Uh, we're realizing that we play an important role as, as dentists, as physicians of the mouth to, uh, to come in and help with the adaptive challenges. Um, I wanna share with you an example uh, from my career. Um, I think that kind of illustrates the technical approach versus the adaptive challenge approach. And so it's also in the way that we do missions. Um, we can approach it in a technical way, or we can approach it as an adaptive challenge. This is Bongalo Hospital. It's located um, just south of the equator uh, in Central Africa and in the middle of a large jungle uh, that's there. And in 1999, uh, this hospital was functioning well. It had um, a number of services. It had a surgical service, it had an adult medicine service, pediatric service, uh, ophthalmology service, had uh, maternity service and prenatal care, it had an emergency uh, service as well. And in 99, when the medical director was asked, what service, what would you do if you could add one more thing um, to this hospital? He quickly replied, uh, dental care. There's no dentist in the southern half of this country. And if we could add one thing that would make a huge difference to our population, it would be to add dental care. And so this is a story of uh, dental care and dental services. And, and my approach to that as I responded to that opportunity and that need to come in and, and provide services. So it's a story of the dental care, but I also one, it's a story of the surgical care and what was happening at the same time in the same hospital in response to the need uh, that was there. And so the building in the front left corner of this picture is the dental clinic and in the center in the back, that whole larger complex was the surgical ward at the Bungalow Hospital. And so as, as I came in, was invited to come, there's a huge need, obviously no dentists in the southern half of the country um, I was coming to, to meet that need and I didn't want to come and, and just be the dentist. Um, I really wanted to come and to train some people so that they could provide care and outreach and hope um, from their culture to their culture. Um, and then if I moved on to something else, there would be still the opportunity for oral health care uh, to continue. And so we put together a, a three-year training program. Uh, we had nurses that were graduates of a nursing school, had their diplomas, had their certificates, licenses to practice uh, nursing. And we took them into a course, a, a three-year course uh, to provide dental care, to learn how to provide dental care um, and get certified so that they could continue to stay and, and legally provide care uh, there uh, for the people of Gabon. At the same time that I began that training in 2000 of those two nurses to become dentists, uh, Dr. David Thompson was head of surgery at this hospital, and he was beginning a training program uh, in training surgeons. And so Dave had been there a number of years, and, and uh, when he needed to go on vacation, he was often on call 24-7. Uh, being often the only surgeon there and, and the needs for him were great. And so when he went on vacation or went on home assignment, he needed to, to bring a dentist in from the States uh, to come in and, and fill in for him. And, and then it happened uh, over the years. But as he began to think this through, he said, boy, you know, it'd be great if, 
we could train some surgeons and had some some people that could stay here, similar to what we were doing in dentistry. And and so he began uh, to talk with others at other hospitals and surgeons and began to realize that, hey, um, that's not only in Gabon, but in other countries, um, surgeons are having a, a similar problem. And as they began to get together and, and looking at that, they became to put together a program that would train surgeons, which and that training would provide for all the surgical care in the city at the individual hospital, but then they would release these surgeons to go and be surgeons and when they finish the program in other countries. And so Heifetz, as we talked about, was one of those authors that, that, that talked about the technical problems versus the adaptive challenges. And here he is, I'm not gonna play the YouTube video, but just a snapshot of the simplification um, of the, the approach to problems that he's getting. Um, on the technical problem approach, the problem and solution were very clear. And that was the case uh, for me with dentistry um, in Gabon. There were no dentists there. Um, they needed to be dentists. Um, and so I'm coming in as the expert to, to be able to, to provide care uh, to that population and then take it one step further and taking that expertise, transferring that to a couple of nurses so that they could stay on and continue to provide that care. And so it was a problem that we saw, it was clear, brought expertise to that, and to some degree fixed the problem, at least for the hospital, um, where now there's oral health care providers uh, in place uh, to begin to, uh, and to continue dental treatment. If we look at the, the surgical model and the thinking there, it was a much more of an adaptive approach. Um, Dave had been learning over the years about the needs that were there and talking with others, uh, getting similar needs and, and began to come together to kind of brainstorm a way to, to solve this problem, not just for a particular hospital and for a particular point in time, but for the continent as a whole. And so, number of stakeholders began to, to come together um, on this. There was the, the individual hospitals and the surgical departments that there was buy-in. There was surgeons in the United States that said, hey, we want to make a diff difference. We'll come and help train and, and, uh, and provide training for, for surgeons uh, that you recruit and churches uh, in the States and within those um, individual countries that were there. They had to get governments on board to for a training program, figure out how to regulate that training program, what kind of surgical boards would they take? And so they began to experiment and try different things. And so in 2000, when I launched my training uh, of two dentists, Dave had the first two surgical residents at the only location uh, for what became known as PACS, the Pan-African Pan Academy of Christian Surgeons. And they began the training at the same time. And so they began in French because Gabon is a French speaking country. My training of, of our dentist was, was in French as well. But as they added other areas and as expertise that only spoke English was coming in to teach and to train and looking at the boards and the testing, they realized soon that they needed to change, for instance, to an all English program. And so uh, the people entering needed to have a degree of English. And, and so we see that with Dave's approach being more adaptive, um, he took a different approach than my technical approach in coming in and, and solving an immediate problem for the hospital. And, and so 20 years later now in, in 2020, um, we see that the Michel and Prosper who graduated uh, from our program in, in dentistry and and they continue to serve. And we're so thankful that, uh, that they're there and providing that healthcare uh, to the hospital and to the people of Southern Gabon who desperately need uh, that type of care. But I compare that with what's happened with the PACS program with an adaptive approach. And PACS has now had 20 years later, 102 surgical graduates. They're operating and leading in 21 different countries. They've grown from that one program at Bongalo Hospital to now 16 programs in eight different countries, and they currently have 98 residents in training. And so I 
think this, you know, just as an example of some of our thinking and our approach, um, do, you know, we come in adaptive approach, you know, what might happen? What might God do through that? Not that there's not a place for, for a technical approach and technical solutions. Those are certainly part of it. Um, and even within the adaptive solutions, there's technical expertise and, and places for people to plug in. So it doesn't discount one over the other. But my challenge is to how we think about dentistry um, and the different areas we serve. Might we look at that um, and approach it a little bit differently? Just very quickly, one of the things that you have to consider um, as you go and practice or as you train others is the legality of the scope of practice. Um, and so um, I'm not going to dwell here a whole long time, but what we took is number three, uh, legal providers for medical clinical work. We took nurses that were legal providers without oral health training and provided them legal training so that we brought them within the scope, legal scope of dentistry within Gabon. Uh, Dave Thompson's program, fully licensed oral health professionals, so taking uh, African graduates, uh, MDs, and putting them through uh, recognized surgical training program so that they're operating fully licensed, fully board. They sit for board exams um, and then are operating in the countries uh, legally. So just something to consider um, the legality of, of your practice if you're doing dentistry and uh, legality of those that you're training. And just one quick approach, we operate in systems and what we do impacts others around us and we're impacted by culture and and uh, one of those books in the 90s as I was studying that really had a huge impact on the way I began to think about things was a fifth discipline and, and looking at systems thinking. And I realized that a lot of what we teach in our residency training program um, is based on this uh, to some degree and uh, systems thinking being the fifth of the disciplines. Personal mastery, I see that as our relationship with God and being right with him, uh, taking care of our soul and being disciplined in our approach uh, uh, to spending time with, with God. And, and, and so, you know, we, whether we don't actually master that, um, it's a, a key component uh, to living out our faith. Um, and in that, we become aware of biases and assumptions. And so we do a lot of training on cross-cultural the way that we enter communities, you know, we're we're essentially working cross-culturally in Memphis and Detroit and and the way that we enter and uh, and work with our neighbors matters. Um, and so we bring biases and assumptions uh, to work cross-culturally. We need to be aware of those. And then a common shared vision uh, that we have for why we do what we do uh, becomes very evident. And then the team learning, this is part of the adaptive, the collaboration, the capacity, the support and uh, building community and a learning environment uh, that we can adapt and, and, and change as we go. And then systems thinking, of course, is that you know, we don't operate um, in this little tiny sphere of a dental clinic. We're op operating within the scope of whatever that community is and within that government system. And so uh, just a quick example, when we used to go on, on uh, dental outreach, uh, from the hospital in Gabon up into areas in the north where there were government hospitals with a dental clinic. I realized that you know, if we're going in and, and treating the patients in those villages, it's gonna have an impact on the dentist. So I always went and visited with the dentist, understood uh, how their compensation was, invited them to be a part of that, made sure that it wasn't going to take away from, from their livelihood, but to leave them in a better position um, when we left than, than when we came. And, and so, if we don't do that, we can go in and we can you know, provide low cost dental care um, and put people out of business. And so we've actually made the region uh, less um, less supportive of, of health care for the population than it was before. Um, so just something to keep in mind as as we look through this. I want to do it now. Just two examples with the time that we have left. One is based in the United States um, that I think is doing it well, is really looking and has had a, a really an adaptive systems thinking approach to the care that they provided. That place is a, a Jericho Road Community Health Center and it's located in, in Buffalo, New York. And, and it started with a physician that just had a call to really treat underserved populations in that region um, that was there. And, and so he started and with a private practice that was focusing um, on underserved in Buffalo and, 
And a lot of that population at that time was refugees that were being settled um, into that region. So fleeing whatever conflict and, and difficulties in their home country uh, were being now settled um, in Buffalo. And so he began to really focus and the practice grew. He began to hire um, people from those different ethnic groups and put them on his staff. And so they could culturally communicate and language or something like 30 different languages or more, if I remember correctly, um, that were there. And so we had interpreters hired and a lot of those and the assistants and nurses and opportunities for people to further their education within medical and, and come on board uh, to begin to treat. And, and so that began to grow and private practice, he, you know, got buy-in from uh, the churches and, and community around him. And then at some point they, were recognized and, and the government uh, um, saw what they were doing. And so they were, had the opportunity to become a federally qualified health center um, with some funding and some grants to help them close the gap um, between what it was costing them to provide this care and the income that was coming in. And, and so they began to have a big impact on a number of ethnic groups uh, that had resettled um, in the Buffalo area. And an amazing thing happened out of that was that People that had come to this country uh, escaping uh, some difficulties, had been through a tremendous amount, had now had access to health care, had access to training in health care, um, and found a relationship with Jesus, had a burden now to take what they had received and go back to the people from which they had come from. And, and so be, as a result of people within this program desiring to take back what they had, Jericho Road now has global work uh, in three different countries. We've got a couple of clinics in Sierra Leone from a nurse that was at Jericho Road that felt uh, God's pull to go back and, and begin a work in her home country. Uh, they have a work in Congo um, and they also have a work in Nepal. And, and so within this, they've developed not only this global program, but they have a number of programs operating right there in Buffalo um, to come alongside of those. They have a drop-in center where uh, refugees can come and just ask questions. How does school work? How do I register my kids? How do I, how do I vote? How do I find healthcare? How do, whatever questions they have, they can drop in. There's ESL training, financial training, um, and a number of different uh, training programs that have come out of this community health center to directly impact uh, the population. And uh, a number of, of churches there within those populations have been established and going through. So Jericho Road is one of those adaptive um, um, health centers that I, I think is really doing that well. Um, exciting thing is that this very week that they're scheduled to open uh, their dental clinic. And so one of the things that they had lacked was uh, dental care and, and providing to that population. And so uh, that's been underway in designing, uh, working with them. And, and this week, uh, they're scheduled to open up uh, 10 operatories uh, to continue care and, and treatment. And, and so within our residency program, each year we have projects that we assign. We assign one domestic project and, and one international project. Jericho Road was, a, was a, a domestic project that we assigned a couple of years ago to look at uh, how dental care might impact uh, that community. So we just think about what might God do through their dental clinic to the population that's right there in Buffalo and then the potential for what might happen internationally through that program. One of our other assignments uh, was a place uh, called Armenia um, and it's a place that, uh, that I picked for our residents to kind of walk through the process of how do we look at a place strategically planned for the potential of dentistry. And I, I chose Armenia uh, because I had been there um, and met with folks there, but also because it represents a non-traditional approach that we have to begin to think about what might be there. And so I want to present a, a couple of resources for you as we look at Armenia. One of those is this cap.mau.se, a site where there's an oral health country area project profile. And we can see at the top there, you can look at 
specific country areas. You can look at their methods and indices. You can explore oral health in general, a lot of resources there. You can find out about the program. And then another thing is the bank of ideas. So they've just accumulated dental projects from around the world, some successful, some less successful, um, but they're there by country. And so you can look at and just get ideas of what people have done and, and some ideas for how you might use dentistry internationally. But if we go here to the, to the country area, click on that, uh, we can type in Armenia uh, and go there. And so we can find out general information about Armenia. On this page, we can also find out the decayed, missing, and filled uh, rate for 12-year-olds. So we can look at all kinds of numbers, including sugar consumption. We're going to focus on just general information real quickly as just an exercise in oral health manpower and education of dental manpower. So if we look here at uh, Armenia and general information, we can see it. Uh, find out that it's a, a population of, of just 3 million people that live in Armenia. Uh, it's the first official Christian nation in the world. Um, so a strong history, uh, primarily, primarily religious influences, Armenian Orthodox. Uh, interesting to just take a note of the surrounding nations of Armenia, this small Christian nation um, that's in, in the midst uh, of a, a really interesting area of the world. Um, and then just a, a quick note, Mount Ararat, uh, they claim, which is across the border in Turkey. Um, that's where Noah's Ark uh, settled. And uh, so it's there as, as part of uh, their history and their culture. If we click on the education of dental manpower, we find an interesting thing. In, in 2008, there were five official dental schools um, there. Uh, it's a five-year dental curriculum. And every year they were graduating 450 dentists, 450 dentists in 2008. I was there in 2013. Uh, the number of dental schools had gone up to eight um, at that point. And um, so we, we see, boy, that's interesting, 450 plus uh, grads a year. How many dentists must there be in that country? So if we go to oral health manpower, we find something interesting that there's roughly around 1,200 uh, it's actually decreasing a little bit and uh, something doesn't make sense, right? If you're, if you're looking at that and you're saying there's 450 graduates every year and yet the number is actually decreasing slightly or around 1,200, um, what might be happening? So these are some of the questions that we begin to ask and, you know, is there, is it underreported? Is there uh, underemployment of dentists? Is there are there dentists coming from other countries to be tra trained? What is the reason for uh, the numbers being uh, differently than they are? When we look at, at a country, we also want to know some other things. So we get the general information, how many dentists, what are the need, decayed, missing, filled teeth, is it country, are there dentists in that country uh, to meet the need? But we also wanna know What's happening from a Christian standpoint in there? And this is a tremendous resource, icmda.net, International Christian Medical and Dental Associations, has groups in over 100 countries. Uh, the US CMDA, of which I'm a part, um, is just one of 100 different countries that are represented by this international CMDA. So you wanna learn about a place, go here and, and take a look at that. We click on Eurasia. And we find this. Um, so where Turkey and Iran come together, it's hard to see, but there's Armenia. Uh, it's a green color. It's a member country of ICMDA. But interesting, look at the other member countries around them. Ukraine, Kazakhstan, Uzbekistan, Turkmenistan. A lot of the Stans have Christian member groups of ICMDA. And, and the ones that don't, some of those have individual contact groups. So they're not official, but there's groups of healthcare professionals like-minded that, that are beginning to meet together. And in the countries in blue, uh, there's not groups meeting together, but there's individuals in which ICMDA is in contact with um, in those. And so this begins to kind of form and, and we get to think about this a little differently. So if we look at what we've learned, population of 3 million, um, ICMDA has a presence there. When I was there, I, I was with their uh, it's called the Armenian Christian Medical Association, and I was with them, 20 dentists meeting there together, a good number of dental students. Um, they do outreach uh, to the underserved within their own country uh, multiple times a year, uh, going and they go across borders and doing that. So if we look at Armenia, 
there's a, a ratio of, of one dentist for every 2,500 people. That's a ratio that's approaching the same ratio that we have in the United States. Uh, there is underemployment uh, among dentists. There's eight schools. Uh, they do have a residency type year that's required. So they have an extra year that everybody's required to do to, to get more of their clinical requirements done. 500 grads a year. And what we've learned is that most of those come from the region on this map to come to Armenia and train. So dental school in Armenia has become a good business, but people are coming from countries being trained and either going back to those countries or leaving Armenia to go to other places around the world. So what are some strategies as we think about going to Armenia? And we haven't fully developed all of this, but, but based on what we know, you know, we can consider traditional practice, you know, or go where the need is, become a dentist and provide care. But we realize for Armenia, that's probably not a practical solution. Um, there's plenty of dentists that are there. You know, maybe we could treat you know, some of the population that's not being treated, um, but not, not a typical approach. Short-term care, you know, if we don't know that Armenian dentists are doing dentistry and going out on short-term trips within their country and across borders, you know, we might think, let's just take a team over there and go and do that. And, and uh, so that's potential. And we could do that at the invitation of, of our Armenian brothers and sisters that are dentists, uh, but maybe not our strongest approach to go in and just provide short-term care there. Uh, education teams, that's a little bit different. You know, can we go in and, and do that? And so um, this was one of our projects and we've been invited to go and, and provide dental education um, to their members and uh, to some of the training programs that are going on there. But my wife, it's interesting, you know, we have, she teaches middle school science and, and we live in a neighborhood uh, that's mostly uh, all immigrants and, and refugees up here in the Detroit area. And her, she teaches sixth grade science and her students, 90% are English language learners, English language is, is their second or third language. And, and so as she's teaching science and kind of going through the scientific method, she is always asking the question because she's teaching from home and I can overhear it. Um, you know, what do you observe versus what do you wonder about? And so, you know, we observe certain things and we can't necessarily draw conclusions from them, but we can certainly wonder and explore what that might look like. And so, you know, we see and observe that there's this number of dentists and this ratio and all of that, but we can begin to wonder some exciting things about what ministry might look like. So maybe I wonder if there's opportunity to for residency training alongside some of the local dentists. And so the residents are looking for clinics where they can go out. There's not enough residency clinic sites. And so they ask the general dental population, can they host residents and help with that? training year. Might there be an opportunity for residency training um, coming alongside that? I wonder if we could have a focus on foreign students, you know, 400 more a year coming in from all of these neighboring countries. What if we focused on walking alongside of, of foreign students during their time in Armenia? Uh, what if we added adjunct services similar to what uh, Jericho Road did in Buffalo, you know, drop-in center study centers, those kind of things that we can help in, in dental and in their preparation and develop relationships and get to know them. And I wonder if there's an opportunity then to, as they go back to their countries in their region, that we could tap ICMDA to help connect them with like-minded professionals back in their home country. Um, as we're able to share and the hope that we have and, and they grab onto that, they go back and, and I'm reminded of when I was there, a fifth year student that was just finishing her her training and was preparing to go back. She had uh, found Christ uh, in her time there and was going back to a, a very close country and had real fears about what that would look like. But what if we could connect them uh, with like-minded groups that are back in that area? And I wonder if once they're back there that they would invite us to bring dental educators uh, their invitation to, to strengthen their work. And so as we think about strategies, we wanna think a little bit differently about the things uh, and the ways to do it. And, and other countries, other regions, certainly if we're looking at Niger, uh, where the dental ratio is one dentist for 1.3 million people, um, our strategies might look completely different. So if there's a place on your heart that you're thinking about, I encourage you to, 
and do some of the research, observe the realities that are there, but then begin to wonder and take an approach that may be a little different in, in what that might look like as you look to uh, serve in missions um, through dentistry. Real quickly, our, our PLUS programs at CMDA or dentalresidencyplus.org, we seek to do that to equip uh, young dentists uh, to serve uh, long-term among underserved populations and unreached populations internationally. Uh, part of our training program is, is kind of walking through these type of, of things, working, looking at cross-culturally. And, and in development, we have the privilege of beginning to put together a program that'll be post-training program, not just for dentists, but certainly for dentists, um, but also for physicians and PAs and even hospital administrator types that are looking to serve long-term to come um, and do a couple of year fellowship and training cross-culturally and preparing uh, to go while you're working with an agency and, and developing support and doing that. That's in development. Hopefully hear more about that in this upcoming year to come. And, and so here's a, a page of resources, um, places to go to gather some of that information. Um, so that you have that available to you. And then questions and, and further discussion, um, certainly feel free to email me, uh, jeffamstutz at cmda.org. Um, I'm happy to interact strategically with you, happy to pray with you, happy to um, answer questions that you might have, also be available uh, during GMHC at the CMDA Dental Residency Plus booth. Um, and uh, for what time's left, a chat function uh, during this presentation. So I thank you for your time. Um, I know this wasn't completely comprehensive. There's a lot more we can do and build off of this, um, but I'm really hoping you're challenged to think differently about your approach to dental care and missions. Thank you.